Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horaski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 90. In today's episode, I interview the clinical athlete himself, Dr. Quinn Hennock. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show to learn who would be in Quinn's personal mastermind, why you should not get in Mother Nature's way, and a little geeking out on pain science. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line, I have Quinn Hannock. Quinn, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. Ooh, 10 sentences. Okay. Well, first of all, Nick, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm honored. Does this count as my 10 sentences? Uh, I, I guess Thank I'll you. give you a couple more. <laughs> uh, okay. I appreciate it. Uh, so I am a, a physical therapist in, in Southern California. I've had... An, an interest and a background in, in sports and training and rehab uh, since since I can remember undergraduate in exercise science uh, worked as a strength and conditioning coach at, coach at, a, at several facilities and then went back to PT school and now I'm I'm a physical therapist and have competed in the sport of of weightlifting which is the snatch and clean and jerk for the past six or seven years or so and before that it was it was high school and college football so. That's kind of led me up to this point. Well, what have maybe been uh, any of the big turning points there for you or any just maybe big changes that you've made recently, whether it be with your lifting, just your your overall health, lifestyle, whatever it might be there? Uh, you know, the, the lifestyle has, has been relatively constant. I think I've always had an understanding or maybe not an understanding, but at least an awareness of, of health and, you know, what, what foods would make me feel a certain way and, and, you know, how I felt when I didn't get sleep versus when I did. And I think playing sports and especially in college, you, you get, you have a better sense of what's going on with your body because you, you need that thing, you know, and you're using it every day. And, and then as a physical therapist, you know, it was more of just making sure that I was walking the walk and, and, being able to to tell my patients or athletes, give them recommendations with confidence that I'm doing the same thing. 
as, as far as my lifting goes, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm one of those guys who can scratch and claw his way to a, to a national level competition, but you know, is never going to stand on the podium. So that's kind of, it's more of a hobby for me. And the sport of weightlifting is pretty consistent. You know, it's, it's two competitive lifts and, and the, the training itself is almost the sport is the training. You know, the, the, the barbells you're in your hands every day in practice. And it's in your hands every day in the, or every, every competition. So I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if anything has changed, but what I've learned over the years is how to stay a little bit more level headed and not get too high on the, on the good days and then not get too low on maybe the not so good days. And that could be either training or, you know, in the clinic, uh, and more of just kind of staying level headed and, and trying to, you know, be consistent in my approach. I'm curious about, uh, you saying the level headed there, uh, definitely as, as a, uh, competitive, like during competition in the gym, uh, but more even as a practitioner, because I find it like, okay, you have certain days. I mean, you walk in the door one day and it's every single person you see is just down in the dumps on something. They're in pain. They're whatever it is. Like, how do you really, uh, I mean, I guess keep yourself composed maybe when, when you face that. Cause I, I feel like as a practitioner, we all kind of see that certain days it's just, everybody's coming to you and there's always something new that you really need to hammer a home to them. Yeah. It's tough because you, you don't want to, you know, they always say, don't take your work home with you, but it is hard. Like you said, you know, when people who are walking in my door, there's something, if they weren't walking in my door, then they'd probably be a happier person that day. You know, there's something, <laughs> they're not sense, coming yeah. in. Yeah. They're not coming in my door because there's something, there's not something wrong. Obviously, you know, they're coming to see me cause there's an issue and it's hard, you know, not to, to take that with you because like you said, per, uh, athlete after athlete, patient after patient, you know, is coming with you to you with an issue, but that's also combined with some emotion that they're feeling. And, and that, and that gets put upon you. You have to absorb that and, and, you know, be able to reflect it into something positive. And that's, it could be draining. And just depending on the day, you know, maybe it's multiple patients that are having trouble with their recovery, you know, and it's, it's frustrating for them and you're kind of racking your brain and it's hard not to, to quote unquote, take that home. And then I think what happens sometimes over the years is that practitioners get, they can't handle that necessarily anymore. And they, you know, they kind of get jaded and they stop being as, as empathetic as because it's difficult. And I have tried to take more of an, of an evidence-based approach in my practice in that patient education, patient expectations, you know, we'll have a conversation with everyone about the nature of what they have going on and, and the seriousness or typically in my office, it's lack thereof as far as, as far as serious grave conditions. Cause I, I, I'm a physical therapist in an outpatient sports environment. So, you know, somebody's coming in with a shoulder injury, they're not coming in with, with cancer. Uh, at least, you know, we hope not, we're screening that out, but it's, you know, it's, it's setting up the patient so that they have expectations for the journey. And, and I'm just very clear that, you know, rehab is, is not necessarily a straightforward thing. You know, mother nature works is at her speed and we're just going to kind of guide the process. And when you spin it 
the right way and you're realistic about the process, I think people can accept it a little more and they're uh, and in that in that tune, they're a little bit more positive about things. And that in turn makes it easier for me to deal with situation after situation after situation because it's not just both of us you know racking our brains and beating our head against the wall trying to quote unquote fix something it's it's both of us respecting the process and then i'm just here guiding the way and it 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 seems to work out well i think one thing i'm curious about is almost going off of that like you said you you'll uh, give somebody kind of try and set them up with expectations. Again, are things going to go up? Things going to go down? Of course, like nothing is ever just straight linear in the exact uh, trajectory, right. I guess, if we, that we want. But I've I've listened to some of the other shows you've been on. And you talk about the nocebo effect, and this is something I think that is still overlooked. Uh, telling somebody that, oh well, yeah, if you watch out because if you do this, it's going to hurt. But if you do it like this, it's going to be okay. Like. Mm-hmm. If you wouldn't mind just kind of expanding upon that a little bit more so people understand how much uh, wording and just talking about some of those expectations can really either uh, help or hamper uh, the results that you might get for your clients. Absolutely. I'll first define placebo, which is I think people are probably more familiar with. Like, uh, you know, in the medical field, it, they always any, – any pharmaceutical or uh, medical treatment is typically – compared in a controlled trial whether you know they're studying the effects they compare it to a placebo so let's say it's a some new medication they have the one group is taking the the medication that they're experimenting with and then the other group is taking a placebo which is probably like a sugar pill or something like that so it's it's something that is meant to do no to do nothing to to produce no physiological response and that's what you can compare things with and so there are placebos in physical therapy, uh, and I'll you know I'll state one, and usually you know these conversations always ruffle a few feathers, but you know the evidence. It's okay, is, let's bring it on. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> okay, the the you know the evidence is pretty clear about something. Uh, say like ultrasound, that ultrasound machine where you you know you rub the gel on somebody and you rub the the ultrasound head around. There's there's a pretty good amount of evidence to show that the effects of ultrasound are are not much more than a placebo effect. Meaning when so let's say somebody comes in with elbow pain, it's nothing serious. They just, you know, they have some type of tendinosis or, or, or elbow, you know, some type of chronic elbow pain or maybe acute. Uh, they come in, the practitioner rubs the ultrasound on them and the practitioner says, yeah, how's that feel? And the, and the, because they went, because the patient went into a doctor's office and they got quote unquote treatment, they feel better not because the ultrasound gave them any actual physiological response to speed the healing process, but because it was a perception. Their brain perceived the environment, and, and now they don't perceive their pain as being as threatening because they felt that they got treatment. That would be the same as taking a sugar pill and saying, oh, my headache went away. Uh, so that's a placebo effect. The The other side of that is a what we have termed nocebo, which is taking what would be a benign or a, a non-threatening situation and creating pain or dysfunction out of that. And so a crude example would be if an athlete came into my door and I watched them squat and I said, and, and I watched them squat and I saw a little knee 
not I wouldn't even call it knee valgus, but maybe it was trending to valgus, you know, a little knee wiggle towards the inside of their foot. And th- this athlete has never had pain in their knee. They're not coming in to me with knee pain. But I, I say to them, oh, you're, you're going to have to watch that knee. You're going to end up with knee pain if you keep squatting like that. And I kind of drill it into their head that, that there's threat there and that it's going to be bad and, and this movement is going to lead to injury. And then a month later, they come in my door and they say, you know what, Quinn, you're a genius. You're right. Ever since you said that, I started thinking about it. And, and now my squats and my knees hurt. Uh, and that's a, that's a really it's a really crude example, but it's – you see it every single day in the clinic with these research studies that are that are showing imaging the our structural uh, our structure is not necessarily a one to one correlation with the pain that we feel and what I mean by that is is there are studies that show a very very large percentage of the population that have a bulging disc or or some abnormality on MRI but are asymptomatic these people have no back pain or they've never had pain but yet if you if you image 50% of the population you're going to be able to find some abnormality and so the problem with that is if somebody has a little bit of back pain maybe they did something stupid in the gym and they just you know they strained something big deal you know so injuries happen let mother nature do her thing but what they do is they jump straight to imaging and then they and then the radiologist will point out all of the things that are structurally wrong with their spine that were probably there long before this recent strain, but now in their mind they have all of these structural defects. They're you know quote unquote broken in their mind, and so they come in my door and they they slap their MRI on the desk and they say, ah, oh, you know, I got an MRI. Look at all the things that are wrong with me. Uh, and that's a it's a deep well to dig out of because the the, the psychological fa- the effects of something like that. And the biopsychosocial factors of, of rehabilitation and medicine are just so incredibly powerful. And we, we know that they're extremely powerful, but we don't yet necessarily know how to corral that and, you know, sp- spin it the other way to make it just, you know, the light bulb click. And so it's, it's very difficult to, to have to dig the person out of that well. And it comes with patient education. And so in that case, you know, my, my intervention, my treatment may just be talking to them and explaining the research and explaining why, you know, perhaps these abnormalities or this quote unquote movement fault that another practitioner told them that if they don't, you know, hip hinge every time they tie their shoe, they're going to hurt their back or they have to sit with perfect posture or they're going to hurt their back. All of these things that are unsubstantiated in the literature tend to weigh on people and that's that nocebo effect. So I deal with that very, very frequently. So Quinn, you talked in there about the biopsych, excuse me, biopsychosocial model, uh, because this is something I remember going over it in PT school, but I don't know. I mean, I'm curious on your, your thoughts on it too, because I feel like all we really ever went over was what it is, not actually how to talk to people and address it. Do you feel the same way or like, is that something that maybe just comes with experience and we have to learn that on our own? I think I think it's a combination of both. I, I agree with you. I think we got a lot of the bio in the biopsychosocial, you know, yes. the the biomechanics, the, the the physiology, but not so much the psychosocial. And you know, then the argument will be, well, we're not psychologists, and and totally understand that. 
but at the same, same time, time have to we be. kind of are. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And it's, it, my language has ch- changed. I think you asked the question, you know, what's, what's been a breakthrough for you or, uh, in any setting, you know, training clinic, I, I think in the clinic, the language that I've used and that I've changed in the last five years has probably been the biggest thing. And, you know, examples like instead of it's very, very simple changes, you know, when if somebody's squatting, instead of saying, don't let your knee come in because you're going to because you'll injure your knee, I say, keep your knee over your foot because you'll be able to produce more force that way. Or I say the same with the back, you know, if we're doing a deadlift or something like that, and this is all in the clinic. I do these things with my, with my patients, you know, instead of saying, if you round your back, you're going to hurt, you're going to hurt yourself. I say, well, keep your back flat because you can, you can transfer more force that way. It's, you'll have a tighter, you'll have a tighter core. I don't, I very rarely spin things towards injury. And that's, that's trying to avoid that nocebo effect. That's trying to avoid fear mongering. That's trying to avoid uh, catastrophizing, which what will happen is somebody, and you've had this before, Nick, I'm sure, where somebody's sitting on the table and you say, well, you know, if you had to rate your pain from a zero to 10 scale, 10 being the worst pain you've ever imagined in your entire life, they say, yeah, I'm, I'm probably a nine and a half, 10. And they're, you know, they're just sitting there with they're not a straight crying. Face. They're not like writhing in pain. Uh, yeah, we probably laughed, you know, 30 seconds earlier from a, from a silly joke or something <laughs> like that. And, and it's not, and you know what I do? I, I don't try to change their mind. No. I don't, I don't say no, you, you're not a 10. You, you, you know, I, I maybe repeat what I said. I say 10's the worst, you know, I, I might have to call the hospital if you tell me you're a 10. And they're like, all right, well, you know, I'm a 9.2 then. And but but they're still you know very straight faced. They're obviously not writhing in pain. Uh, but I don't try to change their mind. All that that speaks to me is saying, okay, I'm dealing with somebody who who potentially catastrophizes the situation. Catastrophizing meaning making making some you know somebody who's got a a hangnail and it's like the end of the world kind of deal. Now that that's a crude example, but I. But this is somebody who who has perceived the situation as maybe a bit more impactful than I think that it probably is from a from an actual scientific standpoint, and so I know that I'm going to spend be spending some time trying to educate them on the phases of healing, on the notions that that pain is a conscious output that you perceive, but not necessarily one-to-one correlated with, with structural damage. Meaning if they feel pain, that doesn't mean something is broken. And then I'm going to try to decrease their fear avoidance to whatever activity that they're having trouble with. And maybe that's a daily activity. Maybe that's, you know, a full on clean and jerk or anything in between, but you have this you have this central sensitization where the pain is not necessarily related to structure. It's more of a, of a learned response, especially with chronic pain, you know, pain that's lasting longer than the natural physiological healing timeframes that we know of, you know, six, eight, 10 weeks. You have, you have the same pain or just nagging pain for six months, 10 months. The structures have likely healed, but now you've had this, what we deem as central sensitization where it's, 
it's almost a learned response to be in pain. Uh, and then you, you, and then you go back to catastrophizing a bit more because you, you perceive this pain. And so it's, and it's been going on for so long. And so you, in your mind, the situation has become very serious. You're now very fearful of the movements. And so it goes so much further than just stretch what's tight, strengthen what's weak. Those, you know, those are going to be interventions that we hopefully use to actually change physiology and, and make tissues stronger and more resilient. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a human in front of us that we can't forget about. And I think to, to the point that you made earlier, I don't know if we got that in school or we were just so worried about getting through that it just never dawned on us. You know, I don't, I don't know. You know what? I can think back of a couple professors that were that were nailing it, and I just it just didn't click for me because I wasn't I wasn't ready to hear that. It, it's just it, it's such a complex conversation that I don't think it it even registered. That actually makes a lot of sense. I I hadn't thought about it in that manner, but you're absolutely right because you're you're just so bombarded by other things, and to have to be able to process all of that when you're, you're thinking basically just completely structural at that point. Like you, yeah. you, you really can't, I guess, uh, see beyond that in a sense. So that does make a lot of sense. Uh, that might just be something like, I, I, I think is a great continuing education for really anybody. Uh, because it probably like, even if you look at, uh, like any strength coaches, anything like that, or exercise science majors, like they're all looking at it just from that purely biomechanical model where we need to bring everything else kind of full circle on that. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Like that might be in, uh, something to be done after, after school or maybe later on in school even. Yeah. I, I mean the three years, you know, every physical therapy program is a doctorate now, but it's still only three years. It's, 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 you know, your undergrad, your four year, some, some courses are three plus three. You can go to three years in undergrad and then your senior year of undergrad, you can go to PT school and finish it out. And so you can get your doctorate in physical therapy in six years potentially. And that seems like a long time to people, but you know, look at medical, medical doctors have their four years and then a residency and then like a, and then a fellowship. And so I think there's just so much, I think they're going to be in the next 10 years, the, the physical therapy curriculum is going to be evolving and, you know, may even extend that to, to that, to four years So chiropractors is four years, medical doctors are four years. It's just, it's so much information to learn and to try to conceptualize that I, I think that, I think that newer grads are a little bit behind the boat when talking about these types of concepts, but then they're thrown into a, a high volume setting, you know, as their first job. And there's not a whole lot of time to learn and reflect. So it's, it's, it's a tough situation. I think that's something that we'll, we'll see uh, evolving over time. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things, I guess, even just going back to what you were saying before then, talking about, you always say like having that process, or I'm sorry, having that conversation about the healing process with somebody because this is one thing too that I just find paramount. And at least in my setting, it's it might be a little more difficult. Like if you're an athlete, like working with a lot of athletes, they might have those other factors. Like we talk about just the lifestyle in general. So eating, sleeping, I mean, just mental preparation and stuff. But I think that all goes 
that's all so critical to that healing process discussion because if other things aren't on point, these tissues are not going to follow the exact model that should probably be laid out for them. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you keep, we, we have, I, I mean, I have the conversation daily because obviously when somebody gets hurt, they want to return as quickly as possible to their activity of choice, to their, their daily activity, whatever they're missing. However, it's, there's, there's very little that will, that will truly speed the healing process that will, that will expedite mother nature's process. The, the, the best, the best things that I could think of are uh, performance enhancing drugs that happen to be illegal and unsafe. And that's what I joke around with my athletes. It's like, if you want to speed healing, yeah, you can go talk to another crooked doctor who's going to prescribe you uh, PEDs. But other than that, you know, we're going to have to make some modifications and let mother nature do her thing because but even it's some of that though, like that's going to help yeah. you muscularly tendon wise and stuff. It's really not going to have as much of an impact. And now you're leading possibly to even greater injury. Oh, totally. Yeah. They're going to jump right back in. They're going to, their muscle. Yeah. The, their, their tendons aren't going to be resilient enough. They're not going to be prepared and, and then boom. And, but you know, we have our, our talks are, we want, we don't want to get into mother nature's way. Is that, that's kind of how I spin it. You know, the, the mechanic can't fix the engine if the car is still running, you know, like if the engine's too hot, we can't, we can't fix it. And, and so then, you know, it's not about doing nothing as far as, as far as exercise or, or lifestyle, you know, modifications, because then the problem is you become deconditioned. And so your tissues are, will heal. There's nothing impeding the healing process. But then when it comes time to reintegrate yourself back into, into activity, you know, you're four, six, eight weeks of, of doing very little. And now you're deconditioned in general. And all your tissues are a little bit less resilient. And I think that's what we see with a lot of re-injury is not the fact that, as number one, maybe the fact that they didn't rehab, you know, the actual the, the initial injury correctly, but that they didn't stay in in condition as best they could during the rehab process. They just took time off, quote unquote. And there's there's healing there's healing constraints as far as remodeling of tissue, but there's also different levels of of stimulus. You know, if if you hurt your knee, you see you hurt your right knee, you've got three good limbs that we can be training. You've got a cardiovascular system. That, that we can train, you know, there, there are things that we can do that are not going to, uh, insult the, the healing area, but that can augment healing, you know, cardiovascular fitness augments healing. There's this crossover phenomenon. I, I, I always lose this, this paper. I've, I feel like I've saved it a hundred times, but there's this, this crossover phenomenon where we, we injure a limb, say I injure my right shoulder, my right knee, if I train the other limbs, there's some type of phenomenon where I don't lose as much strength on that injured side when I come back. And it's obviously some type of systemic effect where you, you have you know some type of, of neural response where your body just it still remembers how to move and, and how, to, how to create force. And so you're not just completely starting from scratch. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a that's a conversation to be had with these, with these healing constraints is that we know we don't want to get in the way, but we also want to do as, as much as we possibly can without recreating the exact symptoms 
that we're trying to let die down. And that sounds like a perfect way to go about it, I think. But unfortunately, some of that is overlooked sometimes. Like there's still so much that you can be doing uh, in spite of an injury. So the injury is not, I, I don't think that's the limiting factor. I think it comes down to almost more like, creativity could be a limiting factor uh as far as you can figure something else out to be doing you can find the best ways to uh not like you said necessarily speed up the recovery but just not screw up the recovery either yeah and i you know i think i think going back to that biopsychosocial model the creating creating a confidence people get depressed when they're hurt and and it's and it's understandable you know they're not able to to either work or they can't do the things that they love. And so it's, it's not a fun time. And I think that prolongs the process as well, because like I said, even with that, even if they're past the healing times of those tissues, they've still got some, some negative thoughts toward the situation. They still got some fear avoidance. Maybe they, they're, you know, that, that fear has caused them to think that they're perceiving uh, prolonged discomfort or pain, even though the tissue itself is is still healed, and so I think training or finding some type of, of activity modification that you can still do during the process is going to mitigate those those uh, psychosocial factors to some extent, and that may not prolong or that may not that expedite the physiological healing, but I think it expedites the recovery process and recovery. And rehab is not just about the tissues, you know. It's it's that it's that biopsychosocial model, like we've touched on so many times already. So, I, th- I think in that sense, you know, you are expediting things. So, Quinn, I'm curious, what are you just geeking out on right now? Like, what's you have a current area of study that you're just going down the rabbit hole on? You know, uh, the the pain science. So, what we had talked about at first this this whole this whole model was if you'd asked me this last year and the year before that and, and the year before that it was it was that realm still i'm still geeking out on that uh there's the the pain science the the mechanisms of of pain the the perceptions of pain you know input being nociception output being conscious perception of pain all that stuff just interests me to no end because it it affects uh, my daily practice, but r- what I'm getting into now, and this is something that's been brought to my attention more so now that I've kind of built this um, network of, of providers, and we've got to form this clinical athlete network, is the research on tendinopathy, and it is interesting to me. Tendinopathy being, you know, just a degenerative or trending to degenerative process of of tendons many athletes uh, experience this many members of the general public who just participate in repetitive movements lots of jobs you know require repetitive movements age can perpetuate this but the tendinopathy research is so interesting to me not not because of what tendinopathy is but how we deal with it and so much literature coming out now from the likes of, of people like Jill Cook and, and others that loading strength training is, is your best bet and, and can help to 
not necessarily remodel the already degenerative tissue, but create strong, resilient fibers around the degeneration and get you get you back to normal. So these these chronic issues, you know, chronic knee tendinopathy that, that people have had for five, ten years, the, the process may take six months, but there there are ways to get around that, and it's 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 progressive stepwise uh, overload, progressive overload, strength training. And I, I'm totally biased towards that because that's been my, that's been my life and the, the type of population that I work with. And so that's what I'm geeking out on is almost like my, it's almost just confirming the biases that I've had, you know, the meathead biases that I've had for a long time that, you know, strength training is, is not necessarily king, but it's so important. It's, but the importance is in the dosing. And it's not just about, you know, going as hard as you can in the gym. And the tendinopathy studies have taken, they, they take the process from controlled isometrics for the patient to just feel their muscles burning instead of their joints. You know, it's, it's kind of nice if you have, if you've had knee pain for five years to actually feel your quad burn instead of your knee hurting. Uh, and so they, you know, they take them from, from isometrics to slow eccentrics to slow, uh, concentric to eccentric. And then, you know, this next phase is just increasing the load. And, and they've actually shown that he relative heavy, slow resistance training is actually starting to look superior to just the eccentric loading that we thought for so long with the Alfredson study with Achilles tendinopathy, where it was just straight eccentrics that helped. Now it's looking like it's both phases, concentric and eccentric. You just need to load slowly and heavy through the entire range. And I and I just love that stuff because it's so applicable and it's so easy to do. It's not sexy and it and it and the and the patient, you know, it takes work. Uh, but when you talk about I'm inter what I'm interested in as a clinician is creating change physiological change. I'm not interested in introducing placebos. Uh, I'm not interested in, in, you know, going to this week, whatever weekend course it is. And then the next three months, every patient I see is what I, what I learned in that course. You know, I, I, I'm not interested in, in being biased in those ways. And I've, because I've been that way for a while, you know, I think we've all been trying to learn best practices, but I love it when the literature guides can guide a process that's so applicable uh, to everyone. And, and the tendinopathy literature has been that for me for the last year or so. And it's funny because I've heard you talk uh, about the Jefferson curl before. And so I know you studied like some of Coach Summer's work and whatnot. And I think actually his, not necessarily research, because uh, he hasn't, not that I know of, published anything, but some of the stuff that he's talked about that I've listened to him uh, and just even like through some of his courses, like the straight arm shoulder work, uh, I've found like profound benefits using that too for just a lot of shoulder tendinopathies. I was just curious if you had done anything with that or uh, have any thoughts on that then too. No, I, I think, so I think that would fall under heavy, slow resistance training a hundred percent because those, those, so those straight arm we're talking like gymnastics, you know, Coach Summers uh, was a 
a high level gymnastics coach for, for decades. And it, the straight arm work for a gymnast is very important because they're, you know, the, those, the, the planche, the planks, the, the levers that they're doing, all that, that, that straight arm work, but it's all very slow. It's isometric holds. It's, they're moving through the entire range of motion, but in a very, very controlled manner. And so I think it's worked because that's exactly what the research shows, heavy, slow resistance training. And the reason I think that's so effective is because a, a tendon is a tendon's job is to trans, transfer the force, you know, from the muscle contraction to the bone to move the bone. But I think I think a lot of athletes and or just daily, you know, general public who are working in jobs that are very repetitive, they're not moving slowly. They're moving quickly. You know, they're moving as fast as they can. And so the tendon is constantly transferring the force but that's a it's very the impulse is so fast it's not i don't not necessarily sure it's enough stimulus to actually remodel the tenant sometimes and what you get is just a tenant that's constantly overloaded uh constant 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 re, re, over time repetitive and i think that's where we're seeing these degenerative changes because we're not also implementing and this is where you know periodization comes into play but implementing these slower tempos where the tenon has to elongate and control that entire range and that's that seems to be what remodels the collagen and that's what i think is probably happening in the cases of your shoulders is the the actual connective tissue not just the muscles because muscles adapt and respond very very quickly but the the connective tissue of the joints are becoming more robust more resilient for, you know, however we define that word. Uh, and I also think that slow tempoed loading in a, in a rehab setting like that decreases fear avoidance and increases confidence because the patient has no choice but to move through the range of motion that was once provocative. And you, I'm sure you've seen it a hundred times, you know, if somebody's knee hurts or somebody's hip hurts, the person learns how to work around it. They they learn how to shift around it. They can put more weight on the other leg. They can kind of twist their body in a way where they don't feel that pain anymore. But if if you're introducing these these isometric or these slow isotonic loaded movements, they have no choice but to confront the the once painful phenomenon. And I and I think so from both a, a tissue healing response and a, and a tissue remodeling standpoint there's also this this fear avoidance where they're they're just confronting you know the the, the scary movement right up front and i think it's very powerful i i hadn't thought about it i think in quite that context I, there's something there that just stuck out to me but yeah i i I'm trying to gather my thoughts on this because this is even just getting me like I'm going through that whole process of like, okay, where am I going? Like when I'm using these two, uh, which is an awesome thing because that, that graded response that you said, the isometrics, like, and just going through this stage by stage pattern, uh, really can become so profound. No, but I like that. I, I think this is going back to even what you started off with when, you, when we started this part of the conversation was feeling that muscle again and not just like the joint or the tendon being yeah. in pain. Uh, so thank you for that. Like I, I, I hadn't, I guess, associated that uh, with 
overcoming that fear uh, avoidance of that. So I, th- I think that's really where my take home was with that. I just wanted to kind of get that out there. Uh, oh yeah. No, go ahead. It's, and, and what, and another, just another quick point on the isometrics is, is feeling, you know, decreasing the fear avoidance, feeling, feeling the muscle burn, but there's all, it's been shown that that creates an analgesic effect. Now it's, it's short term, but if somebody, I think that's, you know, that's why we have these lower level exercises, you know, the sideline clamshell, the glute bridge, the, the eyes, Y's and T's that I think a lot of, you know, a lot of strength coaches or, or, you know, some people out there will, will kind of, that's where PTs will get their criticism is because we stay in this low level realm too long, but those exercises are there for a reason. And that, that muscle burn, you know, if I have somebody with hip pain and they do a sideline clamshell and instead of feeling their hip flexor or they, you know, that impingement feeling the front of their hip, they now just feel their butt and it makes, and it makes, it temporarily makes that pain go away. That analgesic response is, is very useful because now we've created a window to perhaps progress them, you know, to another exercise that would have been painful, but we, we kind of numbed it down a little bit with that with that isometric uh, contraction, you know, they perceive their muscles and not their joints. So it, it's powerful from that respect as well. So then taking this, I guess, to that next step, like, okay, we're, we're talking about this. How about yourself? Like, do, do you use any of the, do you really train like any isometrics uh, during your training for the Olympic lifting? Uh, any of that really uh, in the gym use then too? The answer is yes. You know, I do, it's it's I've run the gamut from being a physical therapist when I started my weightlifting career you know I had, I graduated from undergrad I took a year off and worked but I was a I was a football player and I was always in I was always in pain just because football is not a very nice sport <laughs> and you know and, and so I was fortunate enough never to have a just a straight acute injury you know something snapped and broke and it was all just chronic wear and tear and, and so when I started PT school, it was around the time that I, that I really started to get focused and competitive in the sport of weightlifting. And so here you have this kid who's kind of learning about movement and mobilization and all these things is geeking out over that doesn't really know anything, still don't know anything, but knew much less than, and, and then trying to compete in a sport that requires these extreme ranges of motion that, you know, an overhead squat is, is end ranges for several joints but also requires stability and, and, and strength. So I'm trying to blend these worlds, and I ran the gamut from, you know, a, a t- literally an hour warm up at least of just you know hooking a a, band, a distraction band to every joint in my body, foam rolling from head to toe. I mean, it was ridiculous. And then I would, and then I you know jumped from this other end of the spectrum to like this. You know, I was felt like I was wasting my time, and I just don't need to warm up. I just need to grab the bar and go. But I hadn't yet dialed in my movement patterns and so that didn't help either and i i think what I, what we found now is kind of a middle ground for people and definitely we use we use isometrics without the barbell in uh, in painful situations and so for, for example in our gym we have we have competitive lifters we have uh you know strength and conditioning athletes we have kind of more let's say weekend warrior type athletes, but let's say they're having a little knee pain with squatting, uh, but they still, maybe they have a competition coming up or they have a match. We still want to keep them strong. We'll do some of the lower level 
exercises, let's say a terminal knee extension with a very, very slow tempo, you know, standing with a band or uh, glute bridges, sideline clamshells, you know, the, the slow banded monster walks, all of the, the rehab 101 rinky dink activation exercises that you can think of. However, they're not just placed, they're not just dumped all together in the beginning and they're not just front loaded with 25 minutes of quote unquote activation work. What we do is we put these exercises in between sets of their bigger lifts so that we get the analgesic response, we get we get a little bit of motor control, we get them to to feel their muscles, to gain a little bit of confidence, and then we take that right into a movement that's a little heavier, that's a little bit more dynamic, that will actually create a physiological training response, and it, it seems to work out very well where we numb that pain down and they're able to train and that's one way that we're we're kind of augmenting the healing process or we're allowing Mother Nature to do her thing while we can still get some good training in. And so that could be <clears throat> with the shoulder as well, you know, the the bands doing some type of slow resisted uh scaption angle, you know, the 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 Y angle or some very slow uh kind of like face pull esque external rotation. And, and elevation exercises with the band just to kind of light up the muscles of the upper back and, and shoulder blades in between our our barbell pressing or our, our, our dumbbell pressing. And it's, it really seems to work out well. You get that, that facilitation where we're increasing neural drive to a certain area and then we use it, you know, with, with a heavier implement. And taking that one step further then, Let's say they don't they no longer need that low level analgesic response. They're not necessarily in pain, but now we're at the point where we want to prevent or try to reduce I shouldn't say the word prevent. We can never prevent anything, but reduce risk of future recurrence. Now we'll use isometrics with say the barbell. And so we'll do pause squats or we'll do very very slow heavy slow resistance training for our uh, our tempo squats, you know, five seconds on the way down, five seconds on the way up. Maybe we pause halfway down, pause at the bottom of the hole, pause halfway up, and then finish. And that's a rep. Could do the same thing uh, with pressing, where we're we're doing loaded carries, but we're holding the weight over our head and, and walking, or holding the weight over our head for, you know, five seconds at the end of each. Uh, barbell press and that's an isometric contraction you know that's isometric loading and I, and I think it follows the same principle it's just up a level in regards to uh, intensity and volume and and the adaptation that it will incur so to go back to your original question do we use these things in practice we absolutely do we use them every day it just depends on where the where the athlete is in the, in the rehab process but I think that brings up the point too is isometrics do not have to just be a very low level thing. Like they can be very well integrated uh, to getting whether, whether somebody just wants to be able to stand up pain-free or whether they want to be able to stand up pain-free with 500 pounds on their back. I mean, it can, it can cross that entire spectrum and still be applicable. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And you know, a lot of, I think that's just, it, that's just where it, that's where movement starts. I mean, a carry, just having somebody hold something heavy and walking with it, 
you know, even down by their sides. I mean, I, I just think, I think it's just so powerful. It's so empowering for people to, to handle a little bit of, of load, you know, and they don't have to be, they don't have to be an athlete, but they're going to have to, I mean, carrying two grocery bags in each hand, walking to your steps. I mean, that's a farmer's carry and you're going uphill, you know, it's, it's the same life is going to throw these things at you. And, and I, so I, I think they're, they're totally applicable and isometrics are just a, they're a very safe way to start. And so, you know, any new clinicians out there or students, you're, you're really never going to go wrong with, with at least starting with some type of, of static hold or very, very slow isotonic movement with the limb that is, you know, that they're coming in with the issue for you. It's just going to be up to you though, to find the range of motion, to find the variation that they can move through and feel their muscles without recreating the exact symptoms that they're coming in the door for. Uh, and, and that's just, you know, that comes with, with experience and obviously with some type of, of assessment, but it's just so, it's so powerful. It's a green leafy vegetable that that's, that's what our professors would prescribe or describe movements or concepts that were probably always a good idea. They would, they would call them green leafy vegetables. And I think, I think an isometric exercise, at least to start your treatment plan is one of those. So what's your favorite green leafy vegetable? Uh, oh gosh. <laughs> oh, let's see. Uh, you know, I like, I like spinach. I'm with you on that. I, yeah. Honestly, I, I'm a salad guy, but really salad is just a vessel for my dressing. I'm a, I'm, I'm really, a, I'm really a dressing guy. And so all of the leaves and the vegetables underneath are just kind of a, they're, they're a portal to hold, to hold my ranch and my Italian and my Caesar. Well, or I, I think of like the spinach is like, uh, just that's, that's what I put in the butter in the pan. Like when I want to saute it. So <laughs> that's exactly right. It's just uh, an it's easier delicious. way to get it to the mouth. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Quinn. So I'm curious because you've definitely studied a lot of this work. I mean, uh, you've, you've definitely pro- worked with so many people. Like I'm curious who would be maybe like in your personal mastermind of like five people, whether they be dead alive. I mean, just who would you want to be able to reach out, just call up anytime and be able to ask them questions? I think I mentioned one, uh, Jill cook. She's down in, uh, Australia, I believe. And, and I could, it's always, I always mix it up, Australia or New Zealand. So people crucify me if I get that wrong, but it's one of those two things. <laughs> uh, she, and she's, you know, she's heading a lot of these, these tendinopathy studies. And I would just, you know, I would call her up on a daily basis to, to, to say, Hey, you know, I got this presentation. Where do I, should I start here? Should I start there? Do you think this is too much or too little? Uh, so I would love that. I, <clears throat> another one in the, in the, the pain science realm, uh, Lorimer Mosley. L O M I M E R Mosley. He's, he's been head of, of a lot of the, the forefront of this molding pain science with actual rehab, you know, how it's great. Oh, you know, pains, a pains and out of a, a con- conscious perception and, and not necessarily correlated with structure and all that is great, but how do you actually apply that? And that's what he's been doing for, for a long time. And, and, been doing it very very well um i think 
another one in that same genre, and this is somebody who I've uh, I've touched base with a little bit, is a guy named Greg Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N. And he's got a course that's called Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science. And it's literally like I could have just made that up based on our conversation. Oh, it's a course. You know, that would be an awesome course to blend these two worlds. Well, he's got it. And and that's a, that's a course I want to take, but that's he's a guy who I think is contemporary enough to understand that we can't just you know we can't just sit there and, and have a kumbaya moment with our patient for the entire hour. Like we have to do something with them. But how how much is too much? Like are they never allowed to feel pain? Or if they feel pain, if they feel discomfort a little bit, but it goes away, you know, after the session and they can come back fresh, is that okay? He, he seemed to kind of, I want to say figure those things out, but that, that's kind of, that's what he does. And, and his recommendations are based on the literature, a lot of which he is behind. So that's another gentleman that I would just love, whose, whose brain that I would love to be able to pick. I think a, for a quick question before you going yeah, off of that, yeah. because I, I find that a lot of my patients have trouble distinguishing between true pain and just mm. the muscles are working again. Like yeah. some people no, because we talk about like the deconditioning factor that comes into play then too. And I've, I've started to really try and hone in on that for people because I think it is a very valid point depending on the population that you're working with. Like, no, sometimes it's just, they have no idea that that even did that. Uh, so they really have trouble separating two because they're a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, cause I'll dig into it. Like, is it, is that the same pain that you feel? And a lot mm-hmm. of times the answer comes back. No. Yeah. And, then, and it's not even, and not even general population, even athletes, every, they describe any feeling that's foreign as, as it hurts. Yeah. They're like, Oh that, yeah. Oh, that hurts describe hurt to me. Oh, well, it burns. Oh, okay. So like muscle burn or is it the pain that you came in the door for? Oh, like the muscle burn. Like, all right. And so yeah, it's like you said, you know, it takes, it takes three or four questions to figure out that it's not actually hurting. You know, I, and I've also going back to this point of is any pain. Okay. In some, in some scenarios. And I think, the, I think the chronic pain and the going back to the tendinopathy, it's, Next to impossible to have to to introduce graded exposure and somewhat of a progressive uh, training protocol without them feeling without recreating some discomfort because it's been there for so long. Now, if we're talking about an acute injury, it doesn't make a ton of sense to keep poking the bear there because you're just prolonging the inflammatory process. But when it's a chronic situation and the inflammatory process is probably not a, a large contributing contributing factor. It's very difficult to have every rep or every movement not feel their pain. And if if you spin it to where, okay, well, you know, rule number one is you can't feel any pain. If they do end up feeling a little bit, they're gonna think they screwed up and they're gonna that's that nocebo effect. They're gonna be like, oh, I did it wrong. You know, and they're gonna think that they dug themselves into a deeper well. And so based on Joe Cook, Greg Lehman, these guys have suggested that, you know, the zero to 10 scale is probably the the best evidence-based pain scale that we have. It sucks because we always asking, like, oh, rate your pain, zero to 10. And it just makes them think about their pain more. 
But I, I think that if you, you ask them, you know, you get a general baseline and you can give them a rule of thumb. You know, if, if, they're, if we're doing exercises and they're saying, you know, at, at worst my pain has been, you know, like a seven, right now it's a one and, you know, I'm doing this exercise and now it's, they say, oh, no, it's maybe a two or a three, but I also feel the muscles burning too. You know, it kind of feels good to work it. I hear that a lot. Like it feels good to exercise it. I'll say, okay, uh, I'll give you a general guideline here. I'm okay with this two or a three, like this increase in pain from a one to a two or a three out of 10, but I, but don't go any higher than that. So they, we've, we've already created the scenario in the clinic that they can, that they know now what their threshold is going to be. So they're, they're allowed a little wiggle room as long as that two or a three is some, doesn't get worse during the set it doesn't it doesn't get worse after the set meaning they pissed it off you know and now it's all flared up and the next day it's pretty much back to normal those are my those are my guidelines because i i do think that we have to to create a a training response and rehab is training you know we're trying to elicit adaptation to create adaptation we have to push the body uh, we have to brush the the capacity a little bit and so I, I think there's some wiggle room there, and this is going a little far afield, you know, from what we were talking about earlier. But you know, just some just some guidelines that I've been playing with is a based on the situation, a slight increase is okay as long as their their fear avoidance doesn't rise. And I'll ask them, you know, okay, with that increase in to a two out of three out of ten, does that are you are you also you know are you apprehensive about that? Are you okay with that? They're like, yeah, no, it's totally fine. I just you know, it just gets a little sore, but I, I feel my muscles or, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of icky or something like that. You know, you can tell when they don't, when they don't want that and it increases their apprehension along with their, with their discomfort. And that's what we're trying to avoid. Does any of that make sense? Yeah. I, I'm shaking my head here kind of this okay. whole time. Like, yeah, okay. it, it, it's all absolutely adding up. I, I agree with like all those steps that you're going through. I'm doing similar things with that. And that's why, yeah, yeah I'm fully on board with that. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. You know, this it's so. I guess this is where the art of of practice comes in. You know, the the research is 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 awesome. The evidence, you know, guides me. But it's like, how do you implement it? And it's it's trial and error a lot of times. And that's what's so. I think that's what just kind of keeps me hungry about this whole thing. Is it's so new. This is a very new profession. And it's, it's not as black and white, you know, as, as other things. And so it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting. For sure, Quinn. And I mean, the hour is getting away from us here. So I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, Finish up like quick questions here. Uh, Ask everybody who comes on is just one is who would you want to hear on this podcast? And what is it that you would either want to hear them talk about or just like a specific question that you would have for them? You know, who, who's your audience? So there's, it's fairly broad. I mean, there's a lot of just people listening for general health, but then a lot of practitioners like yourself, I mean, with me being a PT, have a lot of other PTs that will kind of listen in and just see what else they can pick up as well. Have you had, uh, are you familiar with Dr. Mike Isretel from Renaissance Periodization? Okay. That's, I, the name sounded so familiar, but once he said that, yeah. So he is, he's a professor at Temple. Uh, he's a I know that he teaches the exercise physiology course, 
he did. He was also a professor in, in the Midwest, and I forget the school there. But now he's at Temple. He's our he's a, the author of, of several books, but his very very much so an evidence based approach to nutrition, to exercise and training of of all levels, because the science, we're all humans, and so we all have somewhat of the same physiology, and and these evidence-based principles apply. But he's kind of a no-nonsense guy when it comes to nutrition and exercise. And I think, I've never not listened to one of his podcasts, and I've talked to the man in person several times, and he works with juggernaut training systems as well. So we're all kind of in the same family, but I've never not learned new things. Uh, and I think he would be fantastic for your audience. I think they would glean a lot. I think he would bring something different to the table. Very cool. Yeah. I'll definitely have to check, check him out, uh, reach out to him and, uh, see if he'd want to come on. Yeah. I think um, he would be a great one. Cool. So in closing then Quinn, where can I uh, guide everybody to uh, find out more about you? And is there anything else that we can help you with, either myself, the audience, just anything that you're working on, anything that you want to share? Oh, gosh. Uh, so we have we have a directory. We have a, a website called clinicalathlete.com. And what that is is it's a directory of healthcare providers who have a better understanding of exercise and the management of athletes and athletes is used loosely here. If you, if you are an active individual, you know, we consider you an athlete, you're, you're doing these athletic things. And essentially these clinicians are not going to be the clinician that says, Oh, your knee hurts. Well, you know, squatting is bad for your knees anyway. So just don't do that for the rest of your life or, Oh, your back hurts. Well, you probably shouldn't lift anything over 10 pounds. You know, deadlifting would be bad for your back. And, and so I've, compiled clinicians through the use of uh, a filtering process, a screening process. So they fill out an application. They, we have a private forum where clinicians, where the clinicians and healthcare students, we all discuss ideas. We post resources. We talk evidence-based. We discuss current issues. And then I have a phone conference with them. Then they're listed on our directory. And so it's, it's not this whole thing where, oh, yeah, you know, I, I have athlete in my company's name, so put me on your map. It, there is a there's a screening process. We want it to mean something if you're on the clinical athlete directory, and so any member of the public can go on this website and search their area for provider. All the providers have a profile page, and, and so the information is there. And hopefully, you find somebody that you're comfortable with. And obviously, it's a way for the clinicians to connect with their local community. And so. Uh, that's clinicalathlete.com, the the clinical athlete Facebook page, the clinical athlete Instagram, and we're very very active on those two uh, social medias. We're posting about our clinicians and different rehab tips, uh, research articles, that type of thing. As far as getting in hold, getting a hold of me, I'm on I'm on all the the social media. You can just search my name. It's probably the only Quinn Hennick that'll pop up on on Facebook and and Instagram. Quinn.Hennick, uh, DPT, and then just search Quinn Hennick on, on Facebook. And I'm, I'll always answer questions, uh, any messages or emails that I'll get. I'll, I'll answer every single one of them. I can't guarantee that it will be within the time frame that you prefer uh, or the answer that you want to hear, <laughs> but you will get an answer. I can promise you that. And then, uh, yeah, I think that's a good start. I've got We've got a, we've got an exciting project coming out. Probably I don't know when this when this will air, but 
in the next uh, month or so, hopefully we'll be announcing the launch of a book. And it'll Very be nice. a book. Yeah, so I think it'll be good. It'll be a book about improving uh, movement, mobility, positioning for the sport of weightlifting, which is a snatch and clean and jerk. But honestly, the principles in there are universal to uh, to most human movement. Excellent. So it's, the no, titles this, be, this might be yeah. coming out in about a month. So maybe uh, we'll make sure to get that in the show notes then when that comes up too. Oh, cool. Yeah, that would be great. Excellent, excellent. Well, Quinn, thank you again so much for coming on today. This has been a blast. I love uh, love just going into some of the different things in the biopsychosocial model. I keep screwing it up, but uh, I really uh, enjoyed enjoyed talking about that, really diving into that today. So thank you again. Yeah, Nick, thank you. It was an honor to be on the show. I had a lot of fun. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach, and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free, so thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health Podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others, so thank you.